0: Well hello there friends, and welcome to the Shellac Stack. My name is Brian Wright, and for the next hour, I'll be playing 78 RPM records from my collection. It's an assortment of music from the first half of the 20th century. We'll have big bands, jazz bands, vocalists, organists, xylophonists, and more on today's program. And we're going to start with a record by Howard Joyner. Well, that was his birth name, but he became better known in the 1930s as Bob Howard. He was born in Massachusetts sometime around the last turn of the century. Some sources say as early as 1897, others say as late as 1906. In any case, by the mid-1920s, he was singing and playing piano in nightclubs around New York. He appeared at the Park Central Hotel, the Hickory House, the Famous Door, and others. And in the early 1930s, he signed with Decca Records and produced a whole series of pretty good small group swing records for which he furnished the vocals. Although he was a pianist, he did not play on his records. By the 1940s, he was back to singing primarily on his own and appeared on his own television show for CBS for a few weeks in 1948 and then on miscellaneous other radio and TV programs through the 1950s. He was acting on TV as late as 1959, appearing on The Perry Mason Show And later made his way out to Las Vegas and Los Angeles. He died in 1986. The record we'll hear from Bob Howard and his orchestra is a pretty good one, made in New York on September 2nd, 1936, for the Decca label number 917. My copy looks pretty good, but it plays a little noisily. Still, it's a good performance called Sing Baby Sing.
1: birdies do, sing baby sing, when cold winter comes, and they are all out of crumbs, why the poor little birdies, they ain't eating, but they're tweet tweet tweetin', oh ho ho don't you know, that a song a day, keeps me, old Mr. Gloom away, that certain swing so swing while you sing baby sing
0: Howard and his orchestra Sing Baby Sing from the film of the same name that was recorded in New York City on September 2nd, 1936. At various times in the mid to late 1930s, Bob Howard had some really good people in his band. Folks like Benny Carter, Rex Stewart, Teddy Wilson, Ben Webster, Cozy Cole, Bunny Berrigan, Artie Shaw, Babe Brusson. I mean, it was a not a slouch outfit. On this particular recording, we heard Marty Marsala playing trumpet, Sid Trucker on clarinet, Zinky Cone on piano, Dave Barber at the guitar, George York string bass, Stan King drums, and of course Bob Howard singing, opening this edition of the Shellac Stack, Bob Howard's Orchestra. My name is Brian Wright. Welcome. I'm having fun today. I hope you are as well. We're going to be listening to records of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s here today. And up next, we're going to turn to a group called the Dixieland Ramblers. This is on the little fine records label out of Rochester, New York, probably from the early to mid-1950s. My copy seems to have been signed by the bass player Max McCarthy, or maybe it was simply his personal copy— In the group, we'll hear Dick Oakley play trumpet, Ralph Unterborn on clarinet, Hank Berger, trombone, Bill Bennett piano, Max McCarthy bass, and Red Holly drums. It's an old ragtime song that goes back to the turn of the century called Rufus Rastus Johnson-Brown.
2: The man comes around, and what you gonna do? How you gonna pay? You never have a bit of sense to judgment day. You know that I know that rent means go The landlord's gonna throw us.
3: Boom. <laughs>
0: record by a group that would come to dominate the so-called Dixieland jazz scene for more than half a century, Frank Asanto's Dukes of Dixieland, and something called Swanee River Session, just a jazzy reworking of Stephen Foster's old folks at home. In the band, we heard Frank Asunto on trumpet, Fred Asunto, trombone, Bill Shea on clarinet, Stanley Mendelssohn at the piano, Little Chink Martin playing bass, and Roger Johnston at the drums. That was recorded in New Orleans in about 1951 and issued on the tiny New Orleans Bandwagon label, record NOB-11. And say what you will about the Dukes of Dixieland, I have to credit them with opening my ears and my mind to early styles of jazz Back when I was in elementary and middle school, I was a big, big fan of early style rock and roll, stuff of the 1950s and early 60s, from Elvis and Buddy Holly to the Beatles and the Supremes. That was what I listened to the most. That was what I really loved. And then one day at a church rummage sale, I came across a couple of LPs on the Audio Fidelity label from the 1950s by the Dukes of Dixieland, and I don't know why, but I decided to buy them. I think they were a quarter apiece. I took them home and was just delighted with what I heard. I'm sure I had heard Dixieland-style jazz previously, but it had never really clicked with me. But something about these records, the rhythm section sounded like the rock and roll that I knew and loved, but the instrumentation above it was very different. Instead of electric guitars, you had trumpets, trombones, clarinets, and it was just a very exciting, welcome sound to me at that time and it sent me down the rabbit hole of early-style jazz from which I've not emerged (laughs) many, many years later. So, uh, like I said, say what you will of the Dukes of Dixieland, they'll always have a special place in my heart. Before that, a group not as popular as the Dukes of Dixieland, a group called the Dixieland Ramblers, probably a local group from around Rochester, New York, where Fine Records was based. That was the label that issued Rufus Rastus Johnson Brown. What you gonna do when the rent comes round. And they've got a clever little logo at the top of the label. It shows a music staff with a treble clef, and there's a note, a quarter note, on the space for the note F, followed by the letters I, N, and then another quarter note on the space for the note E. So if you read music and letters, it spells out fine. Good job, fine records. <laughs> well, about a week ago, I was uh, having a routine routine, doctor's checkup, and in the waiting room, I pulled out a two-year-old copy of the ARSC journal, the Association for Recorded Sound Collections, as one normally does when waiting for the doctor, and, and stumbled across an article by Matthew Barton called So Rare, The Last Days of Jimmy Dorsey, and uh, decided to give it a read and, and found it a very engaging article uh, really telling the story of Jimmy Dorsey in his final year or two. I had always been intrigued by the record so rare because it sounds so unlike anything else that Jimmy Dorsey had done, and I wanted to know how this particular record came about. How did Jimmy Dorsey reinvent himself so soon before his own passing? And the article gives a a pretty compelling story of how the record came about and uh, charts its way to success. It was not a national hit instantly, but it sort of went market to market Uh, gaining support along the way. Jimmy Dorsey was dying of lung cancer in early 1957, but still touring around the Midwest, playing lots of little one-night dates in small towns through Texas and Oklahoma, and drumming up support for this record. He made his way back to New York in May and sadly passed away a few weeks later, but left this very interesting record, which I have played before, here on the shellac Stack, but I'm going to play it again because I think it bears hearing again. It's Jimmy Dorsey playing almost rock and roll. In fact, Matthew Barton makes the case that it really is rock and roll, or at least what people of 1957 would have considered rock and roll. We'll proceed it, though, with a record Jimmy Dorsey made with the Dorsey Brothers Orchestra on May 13, 1929 in New York, his own composition called Pray Prayin' the Blues. And then we'll follow that with the hit record So Rare, made November 11th, 1956, and we'll turn the record over then and hear the other side called Sophisticated Swing, recorded that same date in 1956. So three from Jimmy Dorsey now. First, Jimmy as we probably best know him of the late 20s and early 30s, and then So Rare and Sophisticated Swing. Jimmy Dorsey recorded those last two selections only about two weeks before his brother Tommy Dorsey died, choking to death in his sleep on Thanksgiving Day. Supposedly, Jimmy played a test record of that for Tommy in the days before he died, and Tommy was not a fan at all, did not like So Rare, but Jimmy liked it, and his kids liked it, and it came out on the fraternity label in early 1957 and went on to be a pretty big hit we started the set with jimmy dorsey and the dorsey brothers orchestra pray in the blues followed by so rare and then sophisticated swing moving along now a record that became very popular in the late 50s uh, for tommy edwards called it's all in the game but it was actually a remake of a record he had made in 1951 on mgm here it is mgm 11035 tommy edwards it's all in the game
1: Has to fall, but it's all in the game, all in the wonderful game that we know as love. You have words with him, and your future's looking dim but these things your hearts can rise above once in a while he won't call but it's all in the game soon you'll be there at your side with a sweet bouquet And he'll kiss your lips, and caress your waiting fingertips, and your hearts will fly away. In a while he won't call But it's all in the game Soon he'll be there at your side With a sweet bouquet And he'll kiss your lips And caress your waiting fingertips And your hearts will fly away.
2: a nice old nightmare on that dream and bless it too without that dream I never would have you but it haunts me and it won't come true oh darn that dream
0: hard not to hear that song and be reminded of the Benny Goodman version with Mildred Bailey. A wonderful record that is. This one isn't bad either. It's Richard Himber and his orchestra on the Royale label number 1796 from October of 1939, Darn That Dream, which came from the film Swingin' the Dream. Stuart Allen was the vocalist, and uh, I rather like that record. Before that, Tommy Edwards, uh, one of the few singers of the 50s to have a big hit on the same song twice, (laughs) several years apart. First in 1951, he recorded It's All in the Game and sold quite well, and then he did it again in the late 50s and sold a lot of copies of that too. That was MGM 11035. If you're just joining us, welcome. My name is Brian Wright, and this is the Shellac Stack on which I play 78 RPM records of the first half of the 20th century. And up next, I've got a couple of xylophone records, beginning with Sam Herman, a recording made in Camden, New Jersey on March 4th, 1927. It's an old tune by Ethelbert Nevin called Mighty Lack of Rose, Victor 20558. And then we'll step up the tempo a little bit and give you something from organist Milt Herth with xylophonist Joseph Green called Xylophonium, one of Joseph Green's own compositions, recorded in about June of 1938. My copy of this pressed on Decca 25. 420. So a couple of contrasting xylophone records now, beginning with Sam Herman. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> could get dizzy just from listening to that record. <laughs> Organist Milt Hirth with xylophonist Joseph Green, something called Xylophonium, recorded in about June of 1938. But my copy of that, DECA 25420, was pressed up at least a dozen years later, judging by the label design, the catalog number, and just the physical characteristics of the record. So that's something that must have stayed in the catalog there at DECA for quite a while. Before that, Sam Herman, Victor two zero five five eight from nineteen twenty seven, mighty lacquer rose. Well, before we continue, I want to just say a quick thank you to a few of our Patreon sponsors, the folks who really helped to make these shellac stack programs possible today. I want to thank Darcy Daniels, Ray Olzewski, and Gary Orlando. Thanks to those three for contributing at the shellac stack Patreon, which is at Patreon.com/slash/shellacstack. There you can give three dollars a month, five dollars a month, whatever's comfortable for you, and the money will help me to pay for the production of these programs, pay for the software that powers everything, pay for the server space. So if you enjoy the program and you feel comfortable giving a little bit, I would appreciate it. Of course, it's not required. I'm just glad you're here listening to these with me. But if it's comfortable for you, patreon.com slash shellackstack. Thank you. And now let's continue with a song uh, written by the trio of De Silva, Brown, and Henderson in the late 1920s. I think it came out about 1927. A beautiful tune called Just a Memory. And we'll hear it played first by the Edisonians on the Edison label. What else? Edison 52143, a rare electric recording. From November of 1927, it's done up in something of a Paul Whiteman-esque type concert arrangement. And then we'll hear Sonny Dunham cut loose with it, a really nice Trumpet solo rendition from about February of 1940 on the Varsity label, Varsity 8205. So, two renditions of just a memory, beginning with the Edisonians. <music>
3: (音楽) ¶¶¶¶
0: stellar record from Sonny Dunham and his orchestra. That was Sonny playing both trumpet and trombone in 1940 on Just a Memory. We preceded that with the Edisonians and their concert arrangement from 1927 of Just a Memory. We have time for three more selections before this program becomes Just a Memory, and we turn next to Fred Elizalda and his hot music, recorded in London in about August of 1927, Clarinet Marmalade. And we'll follow that with Sam Lannan, billed on the label of Cameo 9158 as the Broadway Broadcasters. From May of 1929, Scrappy Lambert is the uncredited vocalist who sings Do Something. And then we'll wrap up this set with Duke Ellington's orchestra on the banner label billed as the Ten Blackberries. It's banner 0607. From January 29th of 1930, Irving Mills is the vocalist with When you're smiling, the whole world smiles with you. Yes, let's end on a positive note today. So starting off this next set, our final set of the day, Fred Elizalda and his hot music. Thank you. We had more time, if only so I could play that again. (laughs) Duke Ellington and his orchestra, When You're Smiling, with some just fantastic trumpet work. There were three trumpeters in the band at that time, Arthur Wetzel, Freddie Jenkins, and Cootie Williams, and I'm ashamed to say I'm not exactly sure who was playing that solo trumpet, but it was terrific. Anyway, that's all the time we have on today's Shellac Stack program. I'm Brian Wright. I thank you very much for tuning in and joining me this past hour, and I hope you'll come back next time, and we'll do it again. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.